You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, hey again, everyone. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Sam, and this is my friend Nathan. You say hi to Nathan. Hi, Nathan. You just saw Nathan a moment ago leading worship, and uh, he and his wife, Matab, are involved in a number of different areas of our church, serving and in community group and serving on the worship team. Matab is one of our pastoral apprentices, which is so awesome, serving this year, which is cool. And Nathan's going to read our scripture today. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with us to uh, Acts chapter 15? We're more than halfway through the book now, so we're trucking along well. We'll be in Acts for a number more weeks. Acts chapter 15, and we're going to read kind of a long stretch of text together. So would you stand to your feet as you continue to scroll? Awesome. Acts 15, 1 to 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, Jesus spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. 
Cool. Well, I would, uh, I would assume that if this is your first time in church today, whether in our church or in the church in general, and you heard that text that was just read for us, you might be thinking right now, what a weird group of people. <laughs> What's this about blood and, and, and strangled animals and circumcision? Sounds more like a Halloween thriller than anything else. Or, or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, and you hear those words read in chapter 15, and you're like, okay, it's, it's a debate between Jews and Gentiles from thousands of years ago about circumcision. Not terribly applicable to us. Like, couldn't we have just skipped over this passage quietly and moved on to something more exciting where there's healings and miracles and the church is growing? If you're thinking either of those things this morning, first, I get it. (laughs) But also, I just want to encourage you, would you stick with me? Because as I was studying this text over the last number of kind of days and weeks and and, and digging into it a little bit more, I I came to realize just how important these words from, from Luke actually are for us. And not only for the church at large, although I think it is applicable for all Christians, but even our church specifically, for CA Church, and the kind of stage and life cycle that our church is in with the succession of leadership, with the growth that we've been experiencing across all our campuses, this text is so important for us as we look towards the future and becoming the kind of church that Jesus has called us to be. On top of that, this text answers a critical question in the, early, or in the life of the, the Christian life. And that's namely, how are we saved? How do do we know that we're right with God? Or maybe more specifically, what do I need to do in order to be saved? I've I've leaned on a number of scholars and Bible teachers in the creation and forming of this talk, but I specifically wanted to mention a a few names that have been specifically helpful. Tim Keller, R. Kent Hughes, there's a guy named J.D. Greer and Andy Stanley who were really helpful as I was preparing this message. Okay, we got lots to cover. But first, let me just give you a little bit of context. Let me catch you up on what's been going on in the story of Acts in case you've been gone for a few weeks or you're new to our church. The the church in, in Acts has been growing like wildfire. People are coming to faith and giving their lives to Jesus and the sick are being healed and demons are being cast out. And it's incredible. It's It's exhilarating. You know, first it was just the Jews in Jerusalem, but, but as Jesus promised, the gospel continues to move forward to the ends of the earth. And as the story unfolds, we see the Gentiles, in other words, those who are non-Jewish, pretty much all of us or many of us who are in this room, the Gentiles start to come to faith and the spirit of God is poured out on them as well. This is such a big moment for the life of the church where they realize that Jesus didn't just come to save the Jews, but that he actually came to save all people, to reconcile all people to himself. And so while there's lots of exciting things happening within the church at that time, there's also a lot of challenges, be it persecution that the church was going through or a myriad of other challenges. And as we approach Acts chapter 15, as was just read for us, there's this conflict that starts to brew within certain Jewish, a a group of Jewish Christians and these new Gentile Christians. This dispute is taking place, this sharp disagreement. And beneath all the layers of what they're talking about, The bottom line is, what does someone need to do in order to be saved, in order to receive salvation? Look at verse one. Certain people came from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, they're they're out preaching and they're sharing the gospel and Gentiles are getting saved and and they're getting filled with the spirit and they're getting baptized. There's so much good gospel fruit. And as they go along, they encounter this group of Jewish Christians known as the Judaizers. Those were post-Pharisee Christians who'd sounded the alarm. They said, wait, 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 wait. 
Okay, hold up a second. We, we've struggled to get down with the fact that Gentiles are now included in the family, but now we've come to terms with that. But if we're hearing you right, you're saying that now these people can become Christians, can be saved simply by putting their faith in Jesus? What about circumcision? What about the laws of Moses? What about these things that God commanded us to do for generations and generations to set us apart as his chosen people? Think about it like this. There were family rules for the Jewish people, ways of living that for generations the Jewish people have been been abiding by. I don't know what, what your family life was like growing up, but in my family, we had some family rules. There were ways that we conducted ourselves surrounding table manners and when we could speak and, and, and what we could say, you know, words that we did not say in this house or where our mouth would get washed out with soap. I don't even think you're allowed to wash mouths out with soap nowadays with children. It's a different day than when I was growing up. But, uh, but, but there were family rules. And, and what would bug me so much is when my cousins would come over to visit and they wouldn't have to abide by the family rules. This is kind of what we see going on here. The Jewish Christians are saying, okay, the Gentiles can come. They can join us. They can join the family. They can come to the table. They're welcome here, but they have to abide by the family rules, like circumcision. They say, unless you're circumcised, according to the customs taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Okay, for context, circumcision among the people of God goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, we see God makes this covenant with Abraham and for all the Jewish people where he says that he will be their God and they will be his people. And as part of that covenant, God says that every Jewish male should be circumcised. It's kind of the symbol of their covenant with him. It's something that would set them apart from the neighboring communities and those around. And so for thousands of years, Jewish boys have been getting circumcised. It was this non-negotiable. And so, and so it makes sense that the, Jewish, the Jews that had become Christians who accepted Jesus as their Messiah, it makes sense that they would assume nothing's changed surrounding that. If you want to join the covenant people, if you want to be saved, come on over, but first, line up, because you've got to get circumcised. Like, I imagine next step class was probably not filled with very many men. There's probably a lot of women and children who were wanting to join the church. A word on the street in Antioch was, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you need to become a Jew first. Put down the pork chop, pick up the Torah. And once you've adopted all the Jewish laws and the customs and all those sorts of things, once you've cleaned yourself up, then and only then you can embrace the gift of God that's found in Jesus Christ. So Paul and Barnabas, they hear this, murmurs of this and the teaching of the day in Antioch, and they say, where is this coming from? Like, this isn't the gospel that we've been teaching you. Why are you adding all these extra rules and obligations for the Gentile believers? And so there's this dispute that starts to happen between Paul and Barnabas, who are saying that you're saved by grace alone, and these new teachers on the scene, these Jewish Christians who are saying, no, you have to become a Jew first. Before you can follow Jesus, you have to become a Jew. And so this dispute gets quite heated, so much so that Paul and Barnabas actually make a long trip back to Jerusalem, about 700 kilometers back to Jerusalem, to gather with the apostles and the elders and to discuss this, to get to the bottom of this, namely, what does a person have to do to be saved? Is it Jesus plus circumcision? Is it faith in Jesus plus law-keeping or... Or what? Look at verse six. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that for some time ago, God made a a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, Why do you try to test God by putting around the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? 
Okay, there were 613 laws in the Torah. Circumcision was just one of those 613 laws. And Peter's saying, like, I don't know about you guys, but, but I never felt like I was doing a very good job of, of keeping the laws perfectly. And I was born a Jew. First, I could hardly keep them all straight. Like, how far are we allowed to walk on the Sabbath again? And, and are we allowed to eat llama meat? How about turkey bacon? And what about stretchy pants? Is that a forbidden fabric or just a weird fashion choice for a man? Peter's like, no matter how hard I tried to keep the law, I never felt like I was measuring up. How about you, Thaddeus? What about you, James? Bartholomew? See, if we can barely keep the laws ourselves and we were born Jewish, why do we project and burden the Gentiles who are coming to faith? Is that what we think that Jesus is requiring of them? Verse 11. We believe that it's through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved, just as they are. This verse is key. See, it's not Jesus plus obeying the law. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. They're saying none of those things could save us. If we're just honest with ourselves for a sec, I think we'd all say that we're incapable of living under the weight of the law. What the law actually revealed was our need for a savior, that the law couldn't save us. Faith in the finished work of Jesus saved us, not what we did, but what he did for us. That's the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Faith in Jesus equals salvation. That's it, full stop. That's the gift of grace. And by the way, this wasn't some new rogue idea that the disciples came up with in that meeting that afternoon. They didn't kind of bend the rules and make things a little more palatable or accessible for for the Gentiles just for the sake of it or omit certain scriptures that they no longer wanted to follow. Maybe important to say, God also didn't suddenly change his mind. This was where the story was going from the very beginning. This is what the prophets of old had been pointing to, a day where the spirit of God would be poured out on all people, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, where this new covenant would be set in motion, a covenant of grace. We see foreshadows of it and and prophecies of it from Amos and Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And so the apostles and elders, they're sharing these things. Then they're looking at these different texts of the Old Testament. They're saying, look at this over here. This is what we're experiencing right now. What Isaiah was talking about all those years ago, we're seeing God do that among the Gentiles and we're experiencing that right now. And as they're sharing those things, verse 12 says this, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. And I love what James said. Based on everything that that we just talked about and all those surrounding issues, based on Paul and Barnabas' experience where the Spirit of God was poured out on the Gentiles, based on the wise counsel that had happened between the Jews and the Gentiles, and most importantly, based on Scripture and the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, James says this, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that. I feel like maybe we should get that plastered up somewhere in the building. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I don't just think that's a word for those first century Christians who are dealing with this issue of circumcision. I think this is a word for us. We should not make it more difficult than it needs to be for people who are far from God to come and experience the hope we have in him. Any obstacle that could get in our way, we should be eliminating Even preferences that I really, really like, ways that I like to do it, that that make me feel comfortable, may need to be challenged or changed for the sake of the mission in order to reach the generations for Jesus. And to be clear, I'm not talking about, about doctrinal things. The message doesn't change. We are wholeheartedly committed to Scripture as our authority. But it's all the other stuff. 
Like in my preaching, I don't want to make it more difficult than it needs to be for people to understand the good news of the gospel. I don't want to speak in like Christianese, using churchy words and and, and saying stuff that people don't understand, or or even speaking condescendingly about people who hold other worldviews than me. I don't want people to come in here and feel like they need to talk a certain way or dress a certain way in order to fit in. I don't want to be a church where it's hard to build relationships and friendships or get in a community group, whether it's because of bad systems or a clicky church culture. We should be the most hospitable, the most loving, the most welcoming, rolling out the red carpet for all people to come and experience the love of the Savior. When people walk in here, no matter who they are, what they believe, or what they look like, I pray that they would experience love and acceptance and forgiveness. You know, I don't want to make it more difficult for people to come to Jesus because I've presented an artificial facade of righteousness or self-righteousness and make people feel like they have to live up to this unrealistically high standard in order to be included or or to be saved. I don't want to make it difficult for people on either side of the political spectrum to come to Jesus because I've weaved in secondary political issues into the gospel. I don't want to make it hard for people to, to confess sin because they're worried that if someone found out what I'm going through, what I'm doing, or what I did yesterday, that they'll judge me or talk about me from behind my back. No, I want to create a safe space where sin can be exposed, where we can expose our brokenness and find healing. Do you get what I'm saying? We should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles to be turning to God. The gospel is not Jesus plus works equals salvation. The gospel's not Jesus plus my cleaned up, sanitized, or at least appearance of a sanitized life equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It's about what he did on the cross for us. It's about his righteousness and not our own. That's the good news of the gospel for all people. James goes on in verse 20. Instead of burdening them with circumcision, those things, instead, we should, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. (laughs) Seems like a bit of a random list, doesn't it? Like, don't have immoral sex, don't eat rotten food, meat of strangled animals. Why those things, James? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. First, sexual immorality. You have to remember that that in in the pagan world, in the ancient world, there was all sorts of extramarital sex that was going on, especially acts done in worship to idols. It was this common and accepted thing. And so while there's probably dozens of other things that that James could have put on there surrounding morals or a way of living, this is the one that was the biggest issue to the culture of that day. This was an area where there was a lot of syncretism happening with the church and the culture, where the church was beginning to look more and more like the culture they lived in and not upholding kind of God's best for them. See, the argument of grace alone isn't isn't that, that, that sin is not important anymore, that there's no such thing as sin. No, that anything goes. No, sin is still sin. And as followers of Jesus, we seek to follow God's moral vision for all areas of our life. And sexual immorality is mentioned here because the Christian vision of sex, a beautiful and life-giving vision, it stood in great opposition to the cultural distortion of sex. But please hear me. It's not not sinning will save us. That's not what it is. Not not sinning that saves us. We're saved by grace of God. We pursue God. We we obey him. We follow him to align our lives with his vision, but we're saved by grace alone. More on that later. So James is saying, tell them to abstain from sexual immorality, but also tell them uh, to keep the moral, uh, sorry, but also tell them not to eat meat from strangled animals and blood and from food polluted to idols. And, and, And okay, where is this all from? This is about love. 
the law of love. See, the, the Jews had these strict dietary laws. And those things in the list, those were repulsive to the Jews. And James is saying, hey, Gentile believers, you don't need to worry about the ceremony or the civil laws of the Jewish faith. You don't need to become a Jew. You don't have to get circumcised. But for the sake of love, out of a love for your Jewish brother or sister, who, who, who you'll be eating a lot of meals with in the future, by the way, don't eat these few things. It was a matter of love, not salvation. Laying down preferences, our freedoms for another. Out of a love for your Christian brother and sister, don't, don't eat these certain things that will be really repulsive to them, but also out of a commitment to the mission. See, there were Jews in Antioch who really needed to hear about Jesus, but if you're sitting there eating a pork chop or, 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 or a soup with blood in it or, or getting scraps of meat from the pagan altar and making surf and turf, then they're not even gonna listen to what you have to say. They're just gonna shut you out right away. This list of foods to avoid is a missional call. James is saying, remember who you're trying to reach. There are things that are permissible, but might not be beneficial for our Christian life. There might be times where rather than exercising our freedoms, the most loving thing we can do for the world, for the people we're trying to reach, is withholding our own freedoms rather than hurting another brother or sister. This is what the apostles are getting at as they send this list of things to avoid. It's a matter of love. Love for those who, are, who, who, who may be unnecessarily offended by these things. Love for a world that desperately needs to hear the message of hope, but they might not be able to hear it if we're kind of doing these things and, and engaging in these preferences. So the elders, they send back this letter to Antioch. Essentially, it says, don't worry about circumcision and the other ceremonial laws. Just, just abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood, and you're good. And verse 31 says, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. In other words, all the men lined up and went to next step and joined the church. <laughs> But think about how freeing that would have been. They were no longer under this heavy yoke of the law. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The Gentiles are invited to the table, are included in the family of God simply by putting their faith in Jesus and receiving the gift of grace that Jesus has on offer. Okay, I wanna shift gears a little bit. And with all of that in mind that we've been looking at of what our text is saying, I wanna get really practical and I want to explore a few pitfalls that I think our text is warning us to avoid. Or maybe I'll say some potential drifts that I think all churches are susceptible to, to kind of drift into and that can completely take us off course and make us lose our missional edge. There's three things on the slides. We're just going to hit two today, okay, for the sake of time. Two potential drifts. The first is a drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders, the drift that's so easy for churches to fall into is a passion for outsiders drifting to pacifying insiders. This happens so often in the church. When a church starts in the early days, there's generally this red-hot vision for evangelism. People who commit to a church plant are usually inviting their friends and their neighbors and their family members. And on Sundays, there's usually an awareness that there's people coming to church for the first time. And so the services are conducted in a way that makes sense to an outsider. And church planters are usually quite innovative around trying new things to reach more people, quite honestly, because they have to. If they don't, no one will come, and they need a certain amount of critical mass in order to make this thing work. And so there's a focus on reaching the lost, inviting people to the table. But as time goes on, and as things begin to settle in, and once there is that kind of critical mass, and budgets are made, and Christians are coming, it's so easy to drift from a passion for outsiders to simply pacifying insiders. In other words, just focusing on keeping everybody happy. 
So I don't want to rock the boat too much or disturb people in the pews with changes that might need to happen in order to be more effective and reach the next generation or initiatives that maybe should be started in the community to be a blessing or overseas missional initiatives. It's easy for a lead pastor or even, even for an entire church for that matter to focus less on reaching the lost and to focus more on making church attenders happy. And in the short time that I've been in this role, I get why pastors can so easily get caught in this trap and get caught in this drift because I want you guys to like me. I want you to love coming to church. I want you to like the music and enjoy the preaching and feel comfortable and at home. But if we're not careful, we can begin to re-engineer this whole thing to please ourselves, to make us comfortable. We can lose our passion for outsiders. This is when churches start to feel super clicky where people can walk in the doors of a church as seekers and really have a hard time connecting with anyone. Because I already have my seat and my friends and my community group and my people and I give and I serve. So you can join us if you want, but you connecting to our church isn't really an important thing for me. Heart for Mission is something that I actually learned a lot from Pastor Mark and Diane in the years that I served with them. They are mission-focused all the time. And as a result, I would say we are a mission-focused church. In so many ways, I'm preaching to the choir on this one, but, but, but this is something we need to talk about on an ongoing basis, regularly coming back to. Because this conversation is one we need to have year after year because we so easily drift and we don't even realize that it's happening. The church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 15, and especially the Jews within the church, they were so comfortable being around other people who were just like them, who observed the same holidays and festivals and who dressed like them and abided by the same rules. And, 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 but I want you to, to, to think for a moment with me. Imagine what would have happened if Paul and Barnabas hadn't pushed back against them. Imagine that ideology had spread all throughout the church in the ancient world. Listen, Acts 15 was a critical moment for the church where they got down to the nitty gritty and said, hey, are these things gospel truth or is this just our preferences? Do we just like to do it this way? Is this just the traditions? Are we imposing these non-essentials on people? Is circumcision required? Or is that just something we're having a hard time letting go of? CA Church, where might we be doing this? And not about circumcision, but about our own preferences and our own convictions around secondary issues. Where do I impose my own expectations on people and make it harder for those Gentiles to come to faith? See, I think... If we're doing it right, and if we're actually reaching the city around us, Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam and Port Moody and the surrounding communities with the gospel, then we're gonna see people coming in the doors that make us uncomfortable, dress differently and wear strange clothes, even people who roll up their jeans. There's gonna be people who come in here with tattoos. Okay, I'm just describing myself. There, there, there's gonna be people who come to our church who do not know the family rules. Okay, who don't know how we do things. There's gonna be people who are smoking in the parking lot or vaping or doing all these different things that, that, that they don't know maybe we don't normally do. And, and that's a good thing for people to come. That means we're engaging the city around us. There's people that need to come in here, but they don't yet know the family rules. And it's not our job to feel we need to convict them. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. We bring them to Jesus. We introduce them to Jesus and we trust that by his spirit, he will conform each of us into the image of himself. Amen? Amen. We don't want to get so focused on external conformities that we lose sight on the one thing that Jesus was always on about, and that's internal transformation. Transformation from the inside out. Okay, lastly, 
a dangerous drift is, is from grace to law. And this is so, so important. And this is, is one that we see happening in our text. Martin Luther, he said, the human heart is hardwired for works righteousness. That our hearts are like this vehicle that's out of alignment and will just so easily drift off the road. Um, many of you know, um, before I came here to serve at CA Church, I worked at a Bible college, Pacific Life Bible College, and I uh, did that for about a decade. And a big part of my job through that time was to drive a group of college students uh, across Canada, North America, to lead worship at churches and preach and do those sorts of things. It's lots of fun. But there was one day specifically, I remember I was driving through this, this street in Montana, and I was in this old church van. And uh, I don't know much about cars, but I believe it was out of alignment, because in order to make it go straight, I had to hold it like this. <laughs> and so I'm only about 21 at the time, I think, quite young, and I'm with a group of college students, and I was getting a little distracted on the road, and I was, somebody was telling a story, I was laughing my head off, and I think I went to slap my lap, just because it was having, ah! slap my lap, and suddenly we started to veer off into the ditch. Thankfully, no one died, everyone's okay, but, but, but that's sometimes what happens in our Christian life. We so easily drift off the path we so easily confuse grace with law, and it happens so quickly. Most of us know here in the room that we're saved by grace, that we're saved by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and yet we keep trying to earn it. We keep adding to it. Grace plus, Jesus plus. See, the Christian life isn't opposed to effort. It takes a lot of effort to follow Jesus, but it is opposed to earning if we don't continually remind ourselves the truth of the gospel, that we're saved by grace, that we're made right with God because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we've done. If we don't continually remind ourselves, if we let our hands off the wheel for just a moment, we end up in that ditch of law, workspace righteousness, trying to perform for God, trying to earn our way to heaven, but that's religion. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The gospel says, I'm accepted Therefore, I obey. Do you catch that distinction? It's subtle, but it's so important. See, religion and workspace righteousness leaves me with a view of myself that's swinging from one pole to the other. If I'm living up to a certain standard and I feel confident and good about myself, if I'm, if I'm living up to those standards, but then at the same time, living up to those standards often makes me kind of cocky and arrogant and unsympathetic to those who are failing. And then when I'm not living up to that standard, I swing to the other side. I feel humble, but I feel crappy about myself and not confident, and I feel like a failure. But the gospel says, my view of self isn't based on my moral achievements at all. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, and yet accepted in Christ. I'm so bad that he had to die for me, but I'm also so loved that he was glad to do it. Ephesians 2.8, Paul the Apostle says it like this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift from God. Jesus plus, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So in just a moment, we're gonna take up communion together. Communion service, if you wanna come forward and prepare to do that. But let me ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? that what he did on the cross for you is sufficient and has made you right with God. Just like James and the apostles did and the Gentile Christians and the Jerusalem council, I pray that today that the load would be lightened for you. 
Would you let Jesus exchange that heavy yoke of works and earning and law with his yoke of grace? And Jesus says in Matthew 11, if, if, are you tired of striving? Are you burned out on religion? Are you weary from all the expectations that have been placed on you by yourself or by others? Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Come find your rest, rest for your souls. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, it was Jesus who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on a cross in our place, rose to new life to make us right with God. And that's what we're remembering through the sacrament of communion that we're gonna do together in just a moment. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross. The juice represents his blood that was poured out for us. As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we acknowledge that it's because of Jesus' work on the cross that we're saved, that we're reconciled to God, that we're reconciled to one another. Hey, I wonder what it was like for the, the, the church in Antioch to eat communion, to take communion together after they received that letter back. There'd been all this strife of, you know, how are we saved? How are we saved? The letter comes back saying, hey, it's by grace that you're saved. And I just imagine the Jews and the Gentiles sitting around the table together, kind of looking at each other. Maybe the Jews are like, okay, I guess you're in. And they eat and they drink. They've been reconciled to one another. They've been reconciled to God. All these things that were dividing each other, all these things that were making it hard to, to, to know God have been eliminated by Jesus on the cross. So we're gonna do this. We're gonna take communion together. Really practically, here's how it will look. Um, in the last few weeks, there's been a few traffic jams, and so we're gonna try and be a little systematic about how we do this, okay? Um, there's communion service, as you see along the front here on the main floor. And if you can come through the aisle to the communion server that's closest to you, that would be great, and then you can find your way back to your seat. But we're also gonna try to do this. There won't be someone releasing you, but we're gonna try to go kind of front to back and so if you see the kind of the few rows in front of you going forward, then it's your turn to get up and you can get up and, and go and, and take the elements. Um, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, whether you come to our church or not, but you have received that free gift of grace, then I wanna invite you to come forward, come to the table, take the bread and juice in community with us, recognizing what Jesus has done. But I also wonder, maybe there's people in this room who this is the first time you've heard about this Jesus. This, this free gift of grace that's on offer from Jesus. If that's you, and you say, you know what, this is new to me, but I want in, I want to follow him, then I'd encourage you, come on up, come in and participate with us as an act of faith, saying, I want in, I wanna follow you, Jesus. I wanna receive your, your gift of grace by faith. And come and join us. If you have mobility issues and can't come on up, there'll be some communion service who are walking around and so you can watch for someone to do that. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll take this sacrament together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful gift of your grace, that because of what you've done for us, we can come to you. We can be made right with God, not by what we do, not by how good we are, not by how bad we are, but simply by putting our hope and our trust in you, the one who made us right with God. Thank you for that gift of reconciliation between God and one another.
And so now as we take this, we remember and we say thank you for your great sacrifice. Help us to be a church like I was describing that welcomes all people to come and to find hope in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.